Today I wanted to kind of wrap up with one last message, our series uh, in, in these Advent chapters of Matthew's Gospel. And we've, we've talked about how in the Gospel of Matthew, he wants us to see the, the Gospel he's presenting as uh, both, both new information in the first century there, a new uh, testimony to what God is doing, but in many ways he's, he's tying it back to Israel's story, the Old Testament, what's come before in all that God has done. This morning, though, I want us to think a little bit about as we hear Matthew's gospel as a retelling of God's story, how there are places where at least it seemingly goes off script. There were a handful of movies in my childhood that got a serious workout on those old VHS tapes. And probably close to the top of that list was The Goonies. How many of you have seen The Goonies? Maybe you're afraid to raise your hand. If you grew up in the 1980s, Goonies was a regular feature at sleepovers, lock-ins, you name it. And there's, you know, this great sort of adventure story that holds the the movie together. But part of what makes the Goonies great are this collection of oddball, kind of awkward kids who are together, this this club, the Goonies. And one of the best scenes in that film is near the beginning, uh, the character Chunk, who's on the screen here, comes over to the Goonies hideout, the, the place where they all hang out together. But in order to gain entry, they make him do a special dance. It's called the Truffle Shuffle. And I won't play it here. You'll have to watch it yourself if you haven't seen it. But it's this hilarious, very awkward dance that Chunk does. And it's kind of a a moment of comedic genius. It turns out that that particular scene also was entirely off script. The, The young child actor made the whole dance up right there on the spot. The director of The Goonies, Richard Donner, said that routinely in the shooting of that film, this group of kids came up with all kinds of insights and ideas that the screenwriters had never imagined when they put the movie together. That sometimes those off-script moments turned out to be sort of the, the best parts of the film. A number of cinema's best scenes turn out to be off script. Another movie that I grew up with, you remember Aladdin and Robin Williams and all the the funny lines he has as the genie? Turns out that that was almost 100% ad lib. They just put him on a microphone and he just made stuff up for hours on end and sort of stuck it in the film. Or if you're a Star Wars fan, you'll remember the scene where Leia professes her love to Han Solo, and Harrison Ford comes back with this great line, I know, right? Doesn't, doesn't acknowledge his own affection for her. Turns out he made that line up on the spot as well. I wonder, though, for you and I in our everyday lives, how comfortable are you living off script? Right, how well do you respond when, when things depart from your expectations or, or sort of the usual, everyday, ordinary? We have spent, again, the, the better part of this Advent season in the Gospel of Matthew, where he tells us an account of Jesus 
the Messiah. It's verse 1, Matthew 1, 1. But throughout these first two chapters, there are a number of moments that do not conform to expectations. Where the story of Jesus the Messiah, at least from our perspective, from a reader's perspective, goes significantly off script. We have an unwed virgin becoming the mother of the Messiah. We have this, this whole caravan of pagan Persians coming to worship this baby Jesus. Right? It's not the story that a first century audience was expecting to hear. However, these details, these departures, these off-the-script moments seem to be the ones Matthew revels in. He selects them, he chooses them to be part of the gospel that, that he tells us. And Matthew tells us that that wherever it appears that God may be going off script, so to speak, something better usually awaits. Something greater is about to happen. So we open this morning to Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Let me pray for us to see what God intends to do. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your gospel, for your birth and incarnation in time and place and history. We thank you that it was not according to our expectations, but something greater and better. But we thank you that in you, our story and the story of our world and the story of Israel is fulfilled. Pray this morning as I preach, may the words of my mouth, may the thoughts and meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we move to the end of chapter 2 and conclude this Advent series today, these last 11 verses, I think, have three more examples of where the script goes sort of off, off expectation. But each time it turns out that where we think things are going off script... God is actually doing just what he said he would do. And in each of these instances, Matthew is intentional to point out how these these unusual expectations or, or unusual happenings are actually part of how God was fulfilling his promise. He was making good on his promise to tell a new and better story in Jesus. With me at verses 13 through 15 to begin. When the Magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up. He took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 13 picks up, not at the the moment of Jesus' birth, but, but probably a few years into his childhood. 
And there's this, this sort of interim time frame after, you know, the, the incredible angelic visits that both Mary and Joseph had, after the, the birth on Christmas morn and the appearance of the angels and the shepherds. There's this season where Joseph and Mary live sort of quietly in Bethlehem, in the shadow of King Herod, just miles from this kingly palace in Jerusalem. And I imagine in those first few years, they, they have these incredible stories of what God has said and done, these incredible promises about their new son. And they probably wondered, as, as it says in Luke's Gospel, Mary right, treasured these things up in her heart. When and, and how would these promises be fulfilled? How would their son sit on the throne of his ancestor David? That quiet season, though, is brought to an end when the Magi turn up. The Magi come to find this this young child, Jesus. They want to worship him. They want to crown him as king. And as much as as I'm sure there was a sense of awe and and wonder at these foreigners who who had come all this distance to worship their son, Jesus... Their arrival also brings Jesus and their family under the the scrutiny and under the attention of Herod and and the whole sort of palace in Jerusalem. Soon as Joseph and Mary's Persian house guests take off and, and head back to Persia in verse 12, we're told that Joseph gets another one of these dreams. From an angel. And this dream is rather alarming. In the dream, an angel of the Lord warns Joseph to get up, take your family to Egypt, because your child's life is in danger. Apparently, the, the dream is so vivid, so real to Joseph, that in verse 14, it, it seems to indicate that that very night before the sun comes up, Joseph has his family packed. And they're on the road south. And like the patriarchs before them, like Abraham and and many of his sons, they they relocate from the land of promise to the land of Egypt. And Joseph and Mary would not have been alone in this, this time frame. In fact, historians estimate that probably somewhere around a million Jews had relocated to Egypt in the decades surrounding the birth of Jesus. They had fled the promised land for the safety and the security that Egypt offered them at that time. But for us, from a a literary perspective, even from a geographical perspective, it's almost like as we hear the story of the Messiah, we're reading the book of Exodus in reverse. Right? The, the Messiah, the long-awaited king of Israel, has just been born in David's town in Bethlehem, there near Jerusalem. And now he's fleeing the violence and corruption of that place to go to Egypt, of all places. Yeah, that's, a, that's a pretty re- radical and remarkable departure from our expectations. can't imagine Joseph and Mary saw that coming. 
Maybe in your own way this morning you are feeling a little uprooted or inconvenienced or redirected in some way. Maybe some of the the plans that you had for this new year, for the the month ahead, for, for the next many years ahead, aren't exactly following the script you had imagined. Some of those things might cause you to be anxious or disappointed or sad or angry. And if that is you this morning, if there's some of that in your story today, I want to encourage you along with Matthew here that amid the inconveniences and dangers and upheavals of every Exodus story, throughout the scriptures we also see God working new plot lines of redemption in parallel. So as Joseph and Mary flee with Jesus to Egypt, Matthew points out, Did I miss it here? Here we go. In verse 15. He says this actually is a a fulfillment of what God desires to do. It's a fulfillment of what he said in the prophet Hosea. That out of Egypt I called my son. Now he's, he's quoting a passage from Hosea 11 here. And it... In its original context, it's about God's faithful love for Israel at a time when Israel had dramatically departed from God's script. They had rebelled. They had been disobedient. They had had not cared or paid attention to God's love for them. And so they were dragged away at that time as exiles and refugees to Assyria. At that time, though, Hosea and, and God through Hosea wants Israel to remember their past, and to remember God's faithfulness to their ancestors who had previously been slaves and and exiles of a kind in Egypt, and how God spoke to them and called them up out of that place and made them his sons and his daughters. Hosea spoke that to Israel Seven or eight hundred years before this, seven hundred years. And now Matthew chooses to recite the passage again, I think not only to link the story of how Jesus winds up in Egypt with his family, but also to tell us that in Jesus a new exodus is about to start. In Jesus, God is speaking again to people who are refugees and exiles and captives of all different kinds. Physically or spiritually. But in Jesus, we're we're going to see a true son of God. One who doesn't reject the kindness and invitation of his father, but who is fully faithful, fully obedient. And who will invite us and initiate us into what it means to be children of God as well. Matthew's saying, in short, God has a plan for Mary and Joseph, and Jesus, even as they, they go off script, even as they head down into Egypt. God is fulfilling his plan and purpose. That, that's the first offshoot from the story, but, 
But then in verse 16, Matthew wants to bring us back to Bethlehem because some troubling things have also developed there that need to be addressed. Verses 16 through 18. Now when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. What's Unusual or interesting about these few verses is that throughout Matthew 1 and 2, it's, 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 a, it's a section of scripture full of God speaking, of people being visited by God, by, by angels giving the word of God to his servants. But unlike just about every other character in the gospel so far, Herod has no capacity to hear God's voice. We don't read about Herod being visited by or hearing the voice of God like Joseph or the Magi or the family of Jesus. He has no spiritual sensitivity, no dreams from angels, only his own hardness of heart. So Herod doesn't just miss the Messiah. He sets himself against God's purposes. And in an incredible reversal here, Not only does Jesus leave the promised land to reside in Egypt for a season, but now Herod, the man who sits on David's throne, becomes the new Pharaoh. In place of of the Egyptian king in Exodus who threw the Hebrew boys into the Nile, here we have Herod, Israel's own king, spilling the blood of every boy in Bethlehem under two years of age. Committing genocide. And the king of Israel, who's supposed to be the good guy in the story, turns out to be an agent of evil and injustice. And we we just read about how God faithfully delivered Jesus. He departed to Egypt as a refugee. But where does that leave the families in Bethlehem? Does God care about the suffering that they face? The violence of Herod that they have to suffer under? Where where do these families and these communities exist and fit into the script of God's new plan for redemption? I think it's gutsy of Matthew even to include this in his gospel. He chooses not to minimize or obscure or hide the reality and the ugliness of Herod's violence. In fact, he's the only gospel writer, the only historian we know of who records this bit of history. But I think it's because Matthew knows, right? and at this point in church history when he's writing his gospel, they have already begun to see that Those living in close proximity to Jesus, even his own cousins, his own extended family members, 
are often subject to incredible suffering. Even as this gospel begins to break out into our world and its power to redeem and heal and set right, even so, the powers of darkness flex in resistance to it. Herod is part of those powers and principalities of darkness. What is God doing in the midst of that darkness? Some of our good friends from our time in seminary in Vancouver uh, many years ago relocated to live in, and work in a missional community in Hong Kong. And their, their organization, their community supplies aid and resource to some of the most under-resourced places in Asia and Africa. And a, a, of particular interest to them are those living as refugees throughout our world. This Advent, their family uh, took a challenge upon themselves. They have four, four boys, and they set out for each person in the family to walk half a million steps, 500,000 steps between Thanksgiving and Christmas. They called it their Advent challenge. And the goal was by Christmas Day to have walked one step for every refugee, uh, Burmese refugee, who is living currently on the border of Thailand and Myanmar. Their, their family has a particular friendship and relationship to a school they've helped build in those communities. And these are people uprooted by genocide, instability, political upheaval. But their conviction in this Advent season is that God draws near to those who are aliens and strangers and are suffering from great injustice and darkness. God desires to come close and to do something new in his Advent. So Matthew tells us in his Advent account that in the face of great evil and great suffering, our God also hears the cries of his people and his children. And so Matthew says, even as Herod is, is working all of this great wickedness and evil and genocide, he says, so too it's, it's fulfilling something in God's story. Verse 17 quotes the prophet Jeremiah here. A voice heard in Ramah, Mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This comes from Jeremiah 31. And Jeremiah speaks about Ramah as, as this village, this community not far from Jerusalem and Bethlehem, the same area of Judea. And in Jeremiah's time, several hundred years before Jesus, it was significant because it was the place where all the, the exiles, all the refugees who were gathered up by the Babylonians, they were brought first to Ramah. They would assemble them in that place. And then from Ramah they were taken away into exile. And the people left behind, the mothers and families, watched their children being marched into forced exile. Where they would likely never see them again in their lifetime. 570 years later, though, Matthew says, 
he, he connects these two events and he says, so too the, the wailing, the suffering of these families in Bethlehem and in the surrounding areas. As they cry out, as Herod takes the lives of their children, God hears. God notices. Even if if Herod is hard of heart, even if Herod has no sensitivity, even if Herod, the king of Israel, has no compassion, the king of heaven misses none of it. God always hears the cries of his people. He is always moved to action. And I think what's most astonishing about this passage that Matthew quotes here is partly... the. The mourning and the weeping and the the destruction and the darkness that verse 15 speak about. But I think Matthew knows his audience and he knows that they know the rest of Jeremiah 31. Which is probably the most hopeful chapter in all of the prophets. Jeremiah 31 goes on to say, The days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. He says, the days are coming when your sons and your daughters will return to this land. When the kingdom that God intends to build will will come forth and be rebuilt. When God's forgiveness and mercy will, will flow afresh in the land. So Matthew says, even as Herod works his wicked designs, God is doing something better, something new, something greater in and through this child who has been born. His kingdom is about to come on the earth. God has heard the cries of his people and he is making good on his promise to redeem them. I want to finish with one last example of God faithfully working even in these off-script moments. Verse 19 says, After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. The angel said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go back to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Keep my comments brief here in this last section for the sake of time. But again, I think these last few verses represent one last surprise in this childhood narrative of Jesus. One new example where the the new Messiah story seems to be headed off script yet again. Joseph and Mary, they've gone away to Egypt. They've they've endured the, the reign of Herod the Great. He's passed away. They're headed back to Israel. They go back toward Judea. But it turns out that Judea is is still a political hotbed. It's too unstable to raise Jesus, the Messiah, in. And so we're told that they, they opt for a change of course. And as they head back 
to Israel, instead of settling in Bethlehem, the, the town and the village of David, they go to the backwater town of Nazareth, way up in the Galilean hills. Scholar Ed Visser says this would make Jesus the first century equivalent of a hick, a backwoodsman, a redneck. You choose the pejorative term. Anyone familiar with the scriptures knows the Messiah hails from Bethlehem, from Judea, from, from, from the, the kingly line of David. What in the world is he doing spending time up in Nazareth? It doesn't make any sense. But even here, Matthew wants us to know that God is faithfully doing something, bringing something into fruition. According to the ancient historian Julius Africanus, an early church historian, in the years following Israel's return from exile, a group of Davidic descendants, family members of King David, established a rural community in the hills of Galilee. And they called this new settlement Nazareth. And the name most likely means a village of the branch. Netzer is the Hebrew word for branch. A village of the branch. And the the village was named such because it was tied in their minds to an important prophecy, an important chapter in Isaiah. That even after Israel's failure and time away in exile and suffering... Isaiah 11 says that God would cause a new growth, a new branch to spring forth from the line of David and his father Jesse. Isaiah 11.1.1 reads, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his root a branch, Netzer, right, from which Nazareth comes, will bear fruit. And so even hundreds of years before Jesus ever showed up there, the people who founded this village were looking forward to a day when a branch of redemption would come forth from the meager stump that they could see at that time. Matthew wants us to know, he grabs this as evidence, and he says even Jesus' detour through Nazareth, even his time, his formative years there, are no accident. Surely the Messiah of Israel will be called a true Nazarene, a true living branch from the vine of God's faithfulness that will bear fruit. And one day we would be grafted into that new branch and vine, Jesus says. This morning we have the invitation to be branches and offshoots to draw our life and our hope, and our redemption from Jesus himself. And he calls us to the table, the Lord's table, to receive those gifts.